0: Frio de Janeiro with Abid Imam. Hey everyone, my name is Abid Imam and welcome to Frio de Janeiro. I'm super stoked because we're gonna be speaking to a world champion, Olympic gold medalist, and a person who has one of the most important jobs in world sport. Her name is Mary Harvey. She was a goalkeeper for the US women's national team at the first ever FIFA Women's World Cup. In 1991, the U.S. went on to win that tournament and Mary was part of the team that won the Olympic gold medal at Atlanta 1996 on her home soil as well. After that, Mary went on to huge roles at FIFA and then the CEO for the U.S. Women's Professional Soccer League. Now she's the CEO for the Center of Sport and Human Rights. It's an absolutely huge responsibility working through global issues that had massive implications. Through having Craig Foster on the show, I started to take a bit more interest in the global side of things with sport and human rights, and my research led me to Mary and the work that she's doing at the Centre. I was really thankful that she could join me on the show. Thanks to Matt Stone from the Centre for helping out as well. It was so great to be able to learn from someone of her calibre, and I think sport and human rights have a safe pair of hands with her at the helm. As always, the show notes can be found on the website, abidimam.com. This site was made with love from the show sponsor, SiteBeat. Their website builder is so simple that even I could use it. For those who are a little bit more fancy, they have e-commerce capabilities and heaps of add-ons if you're looking to turbocharge your business. So I definitely recommend checking them out. Let's hop to it. Please enjoy this discussion with Mary Harvey. So, Mary, thank you so much for joining me on Frio de Janeiro as an Olympic gold medalist, a FIFA World Cup champion, and also the center of uh, sport and human rights CEO. It's a real privilege to be able to speak to you.
1: Thanks for having me on, Abid. This is great.
0: Yeah. And I love that you're, you're on the west coast of, of America and I'm on the west coast of Australia. So we're about 11 hours apart, but uh, that's our commonality there.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm glad to hear. It's uh, getting a little late for you,
0: so hopefully this isn't too painful. Uh, no problems. Well, I'd love to start by talking and maybe rewinding back to your first football experiences and maybe even broadly in sport as well. How do you reflect on those?
1: Well, you know, I, <laughs> as you can tell by my accent, uh, I'm from North America, specifically the United States, and so football has a different place. You know, for me growing up, it was very much a participatory kid sport. It's sort of your your first introduction to organized sport was, was football or, or soccer, as we call it. So I joined a, a local grassroots league on I think when I was 12, which is very late, you know, by today's standards. Right. People are playing it. You know, they have four year olds running around. So (laughs) I was a very late, but I was athletic. Um, And so it was really my first chance to go from sort of school ground, um, you know, recess sort of sport to organized sport. And I loved it. Um, I was good at it um, because I had a physical literacy. I was coordinated and athletic. So I loved it. And um, yeah, I sort of realized that it's really where I, I fit in.
0: What was the the grassroots football system like in America at those times? Because I I hear a lot about the impressive numbers, the the popularity of the game, and so give us an insight into that if possible.
1: Sure. Well, back then it was a it was a a local uh, you know organization in my hometown, Los Altos, uh, which is a little ham. Now it's famous for venture capitalists live there, but at the time it was very different. Um, so this is, God, I'm going to age myself, the mid seventies to late seventies. Um, and it was, you know, a participatory league called AYSO. That's the organization. They emphasize participation, not, not performance. And it was just a really wonderful way to have a first introduction to the sport, um, so, you know, the, the issues of parents being aggressive and, you know, things at stake wasn't there. It was just sort of very pure, deal like playing. Great. It was all girls. Um, there was enough um, of uh, kids, girls playing that I, we could have all girls teams. So I didn't play on mixed teams, I played on, on girls teams. Um, and it was very, you know, there, at the time, there was zero awareness of professional football. We didn't have it on television. We didn't have it in the United States. Well, actually the NAS, the NISL, I think, was dying at that point. In the, you know, so there was a little bit, but I wasn't aware of it. So it just was this very sort of, oh, this is a nice sport. <laughs> which isn't what the rest of the world sees, right? It's like <laughs> everything.
0: <laughs> well, you, you moved to a footballing country, which was Germany. What was it like playing football overseas and maybe some of those challenges that you experienced as well?
1: Oh my God! I mean, going from the United States in like 1989, 88, 89 to Germany was actually I was I was going to stop playing football because I just started. I'm 21, 22 years old. I'm done with the university. I got to go to work. Um, there's no place for really for me to play. There's no opportunity. So I'm to put my degree to use and go to work. And work sent me to Germany. I worked for a company that's now called Accenture um at the time it was called uh, Anderson consulting and so i end up working on a project in frankfurt and if you can imagine you know for and maybe i don't know if some of this translates at all but you know coming from a country where it just wasn't you had to look for it to find football to go to a country where it is everywhere i mean everywhere it's in the newspaper it's On television, I mean, it's just you're a junkie. You just drink it up. It was amazing. Um, And this was the year before. I mean, think about what's happening in Germany in 1989. The wall comes down, small thing, right? That's all happening. And Germany's about to go to the 1990 World Cup in Italy where they win. Yeah, yeah. Right? So incredible time to be over there.
0: Wow. That resonates with me so much when you say – Coming from a country where football is not really number one, and you sort of feel like you're in this underground sort of culture, uh, World Cups over here in Australia would be at three in the morning, four in the morning. And I remember exactly. going to my first or one of my one of my first World Cups, which was in Brazil, and just being in this country that just lives and breeds it. It just it uh, gives you goosebumps thinking about it. So I can I can yeah. imagine what you what you went through. So you became a professional in in Germany as well. So tell us about that your your contract and who you're playing for and and playing professionally.
1: Well, I'll, I'll be, I'll be um, transparent about what professional meant. Professional meant um, how I conducted myself. Um, but technically speaking, I was on an amateur contract. Right. I mean, this is 89, 90, 91, 92 um, women's football. There weren't any professional contracts. I don't think in the world that, that had, a football contract that had a professional player and that player being female at the same time. I don't think those actually existed, nor do I think the player transfer system could process it. You didn't have leagues that were professional. You didn't have football associations that incorporated professional leagues for women. Like none of it existed. So I was on an amateur contract um, and I was working full-time for Accenture and that, you know, you're working 80-hour work weeks, and I'm playing. So you asked about challenges. One of the challenges was, you know, you're playing, you know, 150 games a year. You're training, you know, four times a week, playing one to one and a half games a week, depending on if you're on cup, cup games or not. I mean, it was, there wasn't a whole lot of room for anything else. Um, so it, it wasn't really professional, but I would say it was Premier so it was a total dedication to it. Um, you trained once a day. Um, you know they didn't have things like, like later on in my career when I was a full-time professional player, where there's you know you have a lot more time, you have access to nutritionists, you have access to strength coaches, you have access to weight room kind of like none of that was happening. But the football was incredible.
0: You look at European football these days, and the clubs are very cosmopolitan in the dressing rooms. What was it like in your dressing room back then? Were you a bit of a novelty or was there a bit of diversity too?
1: I was a bit of a freak show, right? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I that, mean, that's not terribly complimentary, but I mean, I, I come in, this is, you know, I, I walk on basically. I mean, there's no U.S. women's national team. There's, I mean, I wasn't on the U.S. women's national team. We hadn't played internationally. Nobody knew if we were any good or not. The Germans are like, free time European champions. They just won the European championship and I show up and they're like, well, you look like you're okay. Like how come you're so good? Like you're an American. Do they play over there? You know, I have to go through all that and that's fine. Um, but, um, but one of the gifts was, is that, um, not a lot of my teammates spoke English Mm. uh, back then. Now it's different, but back then, not a lot of teammates spoke, spoke English. So I was in an immersion situation to to learn German. And as a result, even though it was painful, I learned to speak German.
0: Especially as a goalkeeper, because you're communicating with your, your back four or your defensive line. And that was probably the single biggest challenge
1: was coming also from a culture where we communicate a lot um, to a lot, a lot of other, you know, places, a lot of different nationalities I've played with. They don't talk as much on the field. They'll whistle, they'll clap, they'll do whatever, but they don't, and we're very verbal. And so uh, sort of having that taken away from you as a goalkeeper made adjustment really, really difficult.
0: Mm. So now you're you're starting to play for the U.S. women's and national team, the iconic, uh, amazing team. What was it like and what were the conditions like around that national team during the time of your debut?
1: Wow. Um, you know, w- when I go around the world and I talk to, like, national team players. I've been in Jordan. I've been in, you know, I've talked to national teams in Qatar and in different parts. And and they say, well, you know, thank you for talking about the U S women's team, but you know, you have no idea what it's like here. Right. That's very nice for you to talk about, you know, these, these are rock stars, these professional players, these, these players are larger than life. You don't understand what it's like here. And I say, Oh, but I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I do. Um, You know, it was incredibly humble beginnings. We're wearing hand-me-down uniforms from, I mean, the U.S. Soccer Federation wasn't a wealthy organization. We didn't have a professional league. We hadn't qualified for the World Cup. You know, there just wasn't a lot of of money. And then, uh, you know, so the women's national team was very much a shoestring budget. So it, it wasn't anything like what it is now. I mean, not even close. But there were similarities in culture. And um, the similarities were, you know, how do we make things better given wherever we are? In this case, the very beginning, how do we make things better for those that come after us? And that has been something and collective voice in doing so. And that's been something that the team has retained over the the decades that it's been in existence.
0: One of the key Drivers of that is that first ever FIFA Women's World Cup victory in 1991 in China. The Dare to Dream documentary for the listener, definitely recommend it. It's a fantastic look into that team and, and how you have built this uh, the foundations of this awesome culture that comes through the, the US Women's National Team you see now. Can you t- take us through being in China at that time, one of the really interesting insights of that. Um, documentaries, seeing the reception you had from the Chinese fans and and the massive crowds you were playing in front of, the fact it was called the M&M Cup. It was, it's all a bit <laughs> surreal, isn't it?
1: Yeah. No, it was a different time, right? I mean, it was just FIFA was, this was a first for them. They were having a Women's World Cup for the first time. I mean, they'd had a trial one uh, several years before to sort of test it out. And the countries that you would imagine would be advanced when it came to women's sports were countries that advanced women in general. So the Nordic countries, Australia was there, uh, other other countries. But it was a first for FIFA. So it wasn't incredibly well resourced. At the time, uh, Eminem Mars, I believe, was a FIFA sponsor. And so they gave them naming rights to the to the Women's World Cup, which, of course, isn't done anymore. Um but it also reflected the time, right? The reflections of the tournament, it was incredibly well-received. I mean, we played in front of big crowds. We'd never done that before, but they were very polite, you know? So they sort of, I, in spite of the fact that there are 60,000 people in the stands, uh, you could talk to each other on the field, right? It's not like playing in a premiership where you have 60,000 people and you uh, can't talk to each other because yeah, you okay. can't hear anything. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a lot of crowd noise while you're playing, which was very strange. But it was, and talk about different. We played eighty minute games.
0: Oh, because okay. I didn't
1: know that. It's like the women's marathon, right? It's like, well, women can't play the marathon; oh. they're not, not fit. So we played eighty minute games. I'm telling you, that really paid off in the final because I don't think we could have lasted another ten minutes. Mm. Um, <laughs> and and we played three games in five days. I mean, you wouldn't at a World Cup, right? You would, but but if you, I mean, that didn't change until 1999.
0: Wow. Right, so the
1: first two Women's World Cup, we played three games in five days and we played 80-minute games. So, okay.
0: mm. Yeah. That's intense. I remember that final, the The footage they show Pelé walking out and actually shaking hands of all the players when you're yeah. lining up for the national anthem. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's incredible. Moving to the Olympics, because five years later, you become an Olympic champion on home soil, what are the differences between a FIFA World Cup you played in and an Olympic Games as a player in football?
1: It's a great question. It's so different. I mean, the whole atmosphere is different. As a football international football player, you're used to doing things like World Cups, you know, the Champions League or the, um, you know, the European Championship. You know, you have a tournament and it's only football. And everybody gets it and there's a rhythm to it. And you can play in the Olympics and it's totally different. I mean you're one of everything else that's going on. Um, and football because of the size of it is typically the, the first rounds are moved off out of the right. So Mm -hmm. this is the case in, in, um, in 2000 when Australia hosted, right. You had games in Brisbane, Adelaide, Melbourne, right. They weren't, they weren't Sydney, at least not until the later rounds, I think. Um, so it was the same. So it's a little, it was a little bit strange, uh, but it gave us a glimpse of what was possible because it was the first time we were playing, um, we were playing double headers, right? So two games back to back and first games, you know, 40,000 people are there and we're like, wow, this is pretty interesting. So Americans love the Olympics, love the Olympics. So we were drawing big crowds and we get to the, you know, the semifinal and there's 70,000, 80,000 people there. And, Mm. You know, that, those weren't, no, they were doubleheaders. I think we were your curtain raiser before the men. Um, I mean, it's incredible. Uh, and so that was when FIFA saw that and said, 1999 is possible in big stadiums, the Women's World Cup. But winning, a, winning an Olympics in front of your home crowd is just, I mean, I'll never forget it. It, it was an incredible, incredible night. I can vividly remember it.
0: I mean, what do you remember most from it?
1: I remember being in the tunnel. So the the award ceremony, you have these three podiums, you know, there's, there's, and the the gold ones, the tall one in the middle. And so they line you up single file in the tunnel. And so in front of us was the silver medalist, China, single file. And then behind uh, us, because we're in the middle, gold. And then behind us were the Norwegians, bronze. And so we're all lined up in our award suits, right? And and then we see the trays of the medals walk go by, right? Because they have the, the the people that are holding them and they have like the medals and the flowers. And then you can hear this hush in the crowd and the, the loudspeakers say, okay, the award ceremony is about to begin. And then they, you know, say, uh, Medaille uh, d'argent, uh, l'équipe nationale de Chine, you know, and China comes out and, and there's clapping. And then the, we're out next. And they say, Championnat de Olympique, Jeux Olympiques, les Unis. Well, I mean, it's just sonic boom hits like the stadium. I mean, it literally was like a wall of sound just hit you coming out of the tunnel. It was incredible. I mean, yeah. I'll never forget that. It was it was amazing.
0: Was your family in the, in the crowd?
1: They were. Uh, My family and parents were there, uh, along with the parents of my teammates, uh, you know, partners and family.
0: So it was great. You've had all of these fantastic football and life experiences, and then now you transition to life after football. How were you prepared for it? And Did you always know that you wanted to take this route into sport administration and to continue making an impact?
1: No, I didn't. Um, but I was very much a product of my circumstance. I was never a professional football player until the last two years of my career where I earned $2,000 a month, uh, to be a full-time national team player. Um, I had always worked. So I, you know, started off at Accenture. I worked four years at Accenture while I'm playing on the national team and that took me to, you know, Germany and then I work for two years for a financial services company in Sweden. So I'm in Sweden for two years. And then I go full time. So I had a career that I'd started. Um, and then right after I'm done playing, I go to business school. So I get my MBA. And Moya Dodd, same thing, right? You sort of have this, this transition, law school as well. And then you pop out the other end, and it's time to go back to work. But what was different is I was different. I was, and so I went back into management consulting, but um, I became somebody when I went back into management consulting, this time at Deloitte, where um, I was given really great opportunities. Um, I, I found I didn't scare, you know, they could put, I was fairly young, uh, you know, to be doing very senior level projects and I was doing very senior level projects. Um, probably because I liked the adrenaline and I didn't scare easily, (laughs) you know, um, such a goalkeeper. (laughs) Well, um, but you know, you, and that's where you start to sort of realize what you've been given, or I started to realize what I'd been given through playing those years on the national team. I'm now starting to see it manifest itself in my work self. And that was new. And, uh, you know, that led me to, to land at FIFA at some point. Um, and that's when I left management consulting and um, and, and went into what they say industry, mm. in this case, uh, you know, being an executive that oversaw the development of the sport of football um, from FIFA standpoint.
0: That's a huge role. <laughs> what was it like stepping into those shoes? And now all of a sudden you've got, it it must be a privilege, but then you've got this whole world of football, the biggest sport on the planet, um, and and you're influencing it.
1: Yeah, it was a dream, but also, you know, the agony and the ecstasy of it was, is, and I'll, I'll just be very candid. Um, it was an incredible opportunity. Um, and for me, what was the best part of it was the opportunity to implement change. Um, at whatever pace, it was never fast enough, but, you know, be having an opportunity to work change from the inside is, uh, you know, for me it was attractive. Um, So uh, the, the agony of it was, is, you know, you talk, especially with black lives. Now you talk to athletes who say, you know, when you're on the field, everybody's equal and you leave the field and and you realize the inequalities mm. of you know yourself versus a teammate who's a different color and you're treated a different way and there isn't that equality and i felt that when at fifa because my gender was sort of i was reminded on a daily basis that i was american and i was i was a woman and that was very different i was the first female senior executive um, at least a director of a division. There was Amber Steele was there, um, on the marketing side, but for them, it was a big adjustment. They weren't used to having a woman as a senior executive, you know, colleague. Um, and I was kind of reminded of it on a daily basis and at Deloitte or, or Accenture, you just sort of, uh, you didn't have that. So that was a big adjustment for me. Um, and I guess because of you know the gender and the nationality. There's a sort of reflex reaction to discount. Hmm. Well, they don't know anything about football. She's a woman. She's she's American. She's also an Olympic gold medalist and a FIFA world champion. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's sort of that. Um, that how do you check that, right? How do you how do you come to grips with all of that in one sort of person? Um, and I think that I think that was a struggle a little bit to try to figure that out.
0: How did you approach that in the corridors of power? How do you, how did you go about that then?
1: I learned a couple of things. One is, um, one is, is, is sort of leaning into my personality as a, as a former player. Right. So when I, when we talk football or, you know, be around technicians relating to it the way a football player relates Mm. to the game. It credentializes you. Oh yeah. You know, she is a former player. Like, yeah, she does. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. She wasn't looking, you know, because you're walking around every day and you look like you're just going to work. You don't look like that part of you. Mm. So I would say kind of leaning into my background a little bit more than I would have if I'd been in another work context. I was back still in management consulting. I wouldn't do that, Um, but things like um, that—a bit of a reminder that you know, I I see the game the same as you know the referees or you know the the coaches you bring in or the or the ex players you bring in.
0: Hmm. And what perspective did it give you of of global sport? Having an insight in what's going on in the Pacific region, for instance, and and having that empathy with. Football development across the world.
1: You know, it, it was a, it was a, that, that's the other part that was just incredible was the opportunity to learn. And I love learning. I'm a lifelong learner. Um, and that's the part that, that fascinated me is what do they need to really help them make sustainable change in different parts of the world that had, in some cases, their unique, their uniqueness but also uh, um, areas where they, where they um, shared challenges with other parts of the world. So where were the commonalities, the common threads, and where were their unique uniqueness that then we could try to build something that would really help them where they needed it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, I, and I really love that part of it. I love the listening part, and I love the learning part
0: while you were working at fifa there was some developments in us women's football with the league and that became an opportunity for you to actually make the move to to help the development and establishment of of us women's league so it must have been challenging to to leave fifa but there was a new mission for you so take us through helping to start um, that that new league in the us
1: yeah. So I made, uh, the decision to leave FIFA was actually separate. Um, so I didn't leave FIFA to take it. I left FIFA. Um, you know, there was a new general secretary, um, Jerome Vault came in and it was, it was time to, you know, just, it was a good time to, to sort of say, okay, I've, I've done what I think I can do here and, and look for what's next. And, um, I'd been overseas at that point third country, you know, 12 years, parents are getting older. I'm thinking it's maybe time I come home. And so uh, WUSA had had, was, was the first pro league had folded and it had been seven years, eight years, and they were looking for chief operating officer and I knew the commissioner from when we were players at university. So, um, I agreed to come on board and help start the league up, which I did. Um, so it was uh, it was again a tremendous uh, opportunity to learn about player transfer rules, mm-hmm. and you know when I talked about before about you know professional players and being female, we're now processing you know three hundred professional player contracts, including players from Germany and Sweden and Brazil, and realizing that it is impossible at the time in two thousand eight to process. A professional contract and do a loan of a professional player to Germany because they can't process a female professional player according to their statutes. Oh geez. They couldn't do it, right? So you couldn't do the transfer. It's like they're a professional player, you're trying to give them a loan, you can't loan them. They have to actually stop their like end their professional contract and go back to being an amateur. I mean, it was crazy. So just learning about all of those challenges. Um, was was interesting, and it, it was an opportunity to you know try to improve things.
0: We then moved to the Centre of Sport and Human Rights, which is your current role. It is a fascinating organisation and much needed. Uh, when when you just reflect on human rights a- and sport and that intersection, it's so broad. So I, I really look forward to speaking about those those challenges with you. But how did the idea of the CSHR um, form and 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 your involvement with it
1: well uh how it formed predates my involvement with the organization um but the folklore um of of it, it i mean it's based in fact in 2015 mary robinson um a former un high commissioner for human rights former president of ireland current chair of the elders took over from kofi on, on when mm-hmm. he passed um and john Ruggie wrote a letter to, to Sepp Blatter saying, you know, when are you going to do something about human rights? And this was after, you know, there were reports about slave labor and worker injuries and deaths in Russia. It was, you know, after the 2014 World Cup and all the problems in Brazil, and we're going into the Olympic Games in, you know, Rio, you have Problems with with the Russian World Cup and stadiums. You have Qatar and issues that are coming up now about worker conditions, the Kafala system, worker deaths, you know, working in heat, heat exhaustion, all those things. And so this prompts this finally: when is something going to be done about human rights? And I think it's 2014 or 2015. And so Blatter commissions John Ruggie to write the Ruggie Report. John Ruggie is the author of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, which is the gold standard. So he, which is a serious person. So to Blatter's credit, he brings in, you know, the person who really is best suited to do this work and ask them to say, okay, how would you bring in and, and bring human rights in to, to FIFA, the world cup and, and FIFA as, as an organization. And he writes the Ruggie report and the Ruggie report is this incredible I mean, if you ask about anything, I would refer. Um, there are a couple of business things, but if you're interested in sport and human rights, absolutely read the ruggie report.
0: Hundred gonna it's, get onto it.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, you have to read the ruggie report. Ruggie report's amazing. Um, it's really well done. Um, anyway, so but getting back to the start of the center, <laughs> right? You have this, this sort of growing awareness of the need for for human rights. And then FIFA blows up. Right. So you have FIFA blows up May of 2015, um, all this turmoil and around the same time in Glion, a, a nucleus of organizations, Mary Robinson um, and, you know, the IOC, FIFA sponsors, worker, people representing workers. So people representing governments, you know, the sort of ecosystem, representatives from the ecosystem of sport convened in Glion to have a discussion around human rights, human rights and sport, and what's needed. And that meeting was the nucleus of what would become the Center for Sport and Human Rights. So over time, that developed into a series of white papers um, about different topics, like how do you embed, you know, uh, human rights and prevent human rights harms from happening at a mega sporting event? Mm-hmm. How do you do broadcaster due diligence, right? If, if you're a broadcaster trying to manage risk in a variety of different ways. If you're a sponsor, how do you mitigate risk and supply chains for a mega sporting event, right? So all these things were happening, these white papers, and they were being written in a multi stakeholder fashion. So like, let's take mega sporting events, right? Yep. Mega sporting events, you have David Rutherford, David Grevenberg, sorry, David, uh, Sorry, I'm getting them wrong. The governance of sports bodies is David Rutherford and uh, Dave Grevenberg. But on the MSC lifecycle, mega sporting event lifecycle, you had the IOC, you had FIFA, you had, you know, the ITUC, you had many organizations with their fingerprints on it. Um, That's what makes it different, is it's this multi-stakeholder approach to common guide on embedding human rights into sports
0: why did or does sport have the thought that human rights is not our problem?
1: Well, that's myopic. Um, that's, that's myopic. Um, human rights are human rights, period. And this idea that sport is universally good is also myopic. It's, um, it's a little naive, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um I certainly, I can speak only for myself. My personal experience has been incredible through sport. It has given, it has actualized in me everything that sport, you know, for human development, right? Leadership development, empathy, compassion, ability to work with others, all those things. But look at my experience. It was positive. Not well-resourced, but positive, (laughs) right? I wasn't a Larry Nasser victim. So I wasn't a victim when I was 14 of the president of my federation saying, if you want to get out of, you know, out of Haiti, you have to you know, sleep with me. I didn't experience that. So to, to say that sport is universally good um, or, sport or human rights aren't our issue, um, human rights are always an issue. Mm. And you have human rights by virtue of the fact that you live and breathe. <laughs> so human rights is everywhere. It's not one sector's. it's not unique or, or applies or doesn't apply to any one sector. It is, and sport is no different.
0: What have been the challenges in developing the CSHR and maintaining that independence? Because I see your advisory council and some massive organisations are coming on board and, and are working with you. I also think about how you work with countries as well now and and maintaining those stakeholder relations also at the same time doing the work you need to do?
1: Well, um, it's, it's a great question. And this, what the advisory council shares to an organization, what they share in common is a belief in human rights and a belief in the sporting chance principles, which is our, our North star. Um, and so you have big companies, right? Like Visa or Coca-Cola or Intel or Procter and Gamble. And typically the people, these are big places, right? Mm. Just like government, government's a big place. But those from those entities that work with the center and represent themselves at the center are from the human rights side of things. So the people at Coca-Cola who look at work, workplace, you know, rights and conditions the people at Vista who are concerned with social responsibility and sustainability, the people at, you know, um, governments who are responsible for the human rights part of the government. And typically those are people who work in the foreign service because that's typically where it, where it lies. Yeah. Um, And Australia is same thing. So they are very engaged, um, you know, in terms of the work of the center and their commitment to human rights without question.
0: There's countries in the world, of course, where there's human rights abuses and, and in sport as well. How do you manage trying to work with those countries where the help and the assistance is probably most required, but it's hardest to actually get in and, and to to do the work you need to do? Well, that's a really good question. Um,
1: you know, it doesn't, I mean, let's look at, let's look at Qatar right? I mean, Qatar won the World Cup back in, run the right to host the World Cup back in, well, 2010. And it was a commitment to a vision of what Qatar could become. And I talked to Hassan Al Tawadi about this because he and I share that. We both worked on bid teams, right? And I worked on the United 2026 bid team. And he said it was about what we wanted to become. And, And so where that has taken them over 10 years, 12 years, is is labor reform. It's new laws being passed. It's, you know, there's still, you know, progress to be made. But think about that commitment to change and acknowledging and commitment to acknowledging where uh, change could be made or needs to be made. Um, That's different then you know bidding for an event and sort of well we don't have human rights problems here. Well we don't talk about human rights. Mm. Beijing 2022.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay? I mean, so if if you're working with and this was the approach that you know as part of the bid team for 2026, which I did before I came to to the center, it was acknowledging what your human rights risks are and owning them and saying, "You know what? Yeah, there are a lot of guns in the country or, um, you know, at the time there was a Muslim ban, you know, and here are our, our challenges. Here's the process that we're going to outline for how we, over the next eight years, plan to work through those and mitigate those risks. That's the difference. And having that be a public document so you can't put it in a drawer, that's the difference, Right? It's a commitment to saying we acknowledge, compared to international you know, human rights standards, there are gaps. Here's what we're prepared to do about them. And it's public, so the court of public opinion and others can hold us accountable. That's the difference, I think.
0: I need to applaud the work you've done on the United 2026 bid. Uh, for the listener, it's the USA, Mexico, Canada that will be hosting that uh, that FIFA Men's World Cup. Uh, and I'd like to talk about that pushback a little bit. You said there was a Muslim ban. There were, there's there been a, a challenging time in politics in America. Did you get any pushback working on something like that, that piece of work during that time?
1: Well, it's easy to go to politics. Um, I, I'm going to take politics and park it for a minute. When I went to work for The Bid, I thought I was going to work on environmental sustainability, which is another passion of mine, right? Environmental protection. And I'm working alongside some incredible people who are big sporting event veterans. They were involved in the 20, you know, 2022 bid back when it was, you know, that was won by Mm -hmm. Qatar. They were involved in 19 World Cup, 1994. They were involved in World Cup, 1999. You know, a lot of people who have, big mega sporting event, FIFA experience, right? And those are the people that are working logically at the bid. Yeah. And I think I'm going to come in. And so now they say, well, you know, we know we wanted you to work on, on uh, the, you know, this part of it, but what we really need is someone to look at these human rights requirements because they're new. Nobody knows what they're going to look like. Nobody understands them. You know, nobody knows it. It's all new. So when I got these, and I looked at him and I looked at in the backdrop of then the current political environment. I said, OK, the former player part of me says, how do I convince people who are thinking about, you know, we're going to talk about stadiums and, and field sizes and hospitality and fan zones and enthusiasm and three countries working together and blah 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 i'm like yes (laughs) i'm all in but we have to talk about human rights like we don't want to talk about you like i know but we have to well we don't have human rights problems here i said well if you're a straight white guy you probably don't have human rights challenges but if you're not straight not white and not a guy (laughs) you're gonna you know that that's privilege right so it was this process of convincing internally why it was important to acknowledge what our risks were. That was the single biggest challenge um, and why it was important to be humble and and very just own it, own what the challenges are. And part of it was, do you wanna win? You know, yeah. you're asking the, the the voters to give Donald Trump, among other countries, but let's just yeah. be real about the political Donald Trump, the World Cup, the crown jewel. So let's think about the optics of that, and what can we give them that says, "Hey, we get it."
0: Hmm.
1: And that was the that was part of it was the human rights strategy.
0: Well, I really hope that World Cup will set a new benchmark in that space and and more. So. An area I really wanted to, um, a bit of terrain I wanted to cover with you was sports washing and how someone in the public can discern from sports washing to a genuine attempt by a country to improve outlooks in a specific area.
1: Yeah. So we look at this a lot at the center and it gets down to what I was talking about before when it comes to, uh, so first of all, you know, there there are two ways to look at this or or two parts to this. One is, it's what's the expectation that's set. So if you're going to award the world cup or the Olympic games or the Euro or rugby, the rugby world cup, whatever, whoever, whatever you're, you're doing to award these events, what's the expectation in terms of human rights protections, right? are governing bodies of sport articulating very clearly what those look like and what they mean? That's the first side of it. That's the first part of the equation, the bidding requirements and expectations. The second part of it is how do you respond to that? Right? So if you have them, uh, uh, Euro 2024 had human rights requirements, United 2026, had human rights requirements, how do you respond to them? Is it a box-ticking exercise or are you taking it seriously? And you're really doing a risk assessment. You're engaging with stakeholders who are going to tell you things you maybe don't want to hear mm. or are co- uncomfortable hearing. You're going to hear about what it's like to cross the border from the U- Mexico into the United States if you're not you know, an American citizen or white. You're going to hear all sorts of things. But do you take it seriously or do you just sort of mail it in? make a box picking actors. So that's that's the, the second part of it, right? Is how does the actors on the other side, and then let's say there aren't human rights requirements. Mm. So that's Qatar 2022, that's uh, Beijing 2022, right? How do then the, the organizers respond to questions or concerns raised by civil society and others around human rights? FIFA said, yeah, UN Guiding Principles, um, you know, we're going to engage with the Supreme Committee and others around our concerns. And the Supreme Committee responds and you have this, and now you have an ILO office in Qatar. You have, right, you have labor law changes. You have a lot of things happening. Beijing, um, I don't know if there's been, I assume there's been engagement, but is there that same, you know, it starts with, can you say the words human rights mm-hmm. <laughs> or do you talk about sustainability, <laughs> right? Okay. So we'll talk about sustainability. We get that, yeah. but is there a commitment to engage and address? And that for me is the difference between sports washing and having a world, or a sporting event where really there's commitment to say, we get it. Here's what we're prepared to do. And in doing that, we're going to have transparency and we're going to engage civil society in the process. That's the difference.
0: I'm really uh, conscious of your time, Mary. So a few more questions. I'm sure working in global sport right now, there must be issues that come across your desk that are really difficult to grapple with. How do you work through those and, and come to a consensus and work with stakeholders when it's really, really complicated.
1: That's the part that I think is, is the most fascinating one of the most fascinating parts of this, of this job is, and the UN guiding principles talk about leverage, right? Where is their leverage? So, and, and there isn't an easy problem. I think that we, <laughs> that we're looking at, you know, transgendered sport, um, athlete abuse, uh, athlete activism, an athlete voice, freedom of expression, um, remedy. What does remedy look like in the world of sport? I mean, tough problems. Um, and I think everyone, there isn't really a, necessarily the same answer to each one of those or, or approach to each one of those challenges. Each one looks perhaps a little bit different, um, but that's what's fascinating about it is trying to figure out where is the opportunity here? Where is there room to maneuver here? Where is there an opportunity collectively to bring change to bear on on a certain challenged sport? And that's the part where collective action is at the heart of it. It always involves either a subset of actors or all actors that are involved in the advisory council who are also involved key players in the ecosystem of sport. Mm -hmm. They can be sponsors. They can be broadcasters. They can be governments. They can be civil society. They can be sports bodies. They can be trade unions, right? All of them. And that's the part that I think is the most rewarding and the most interesting part of it, because it's a problem. It's a problem that you have to figure out, pick apart and figure out.
0: One of those that you did mention is trans and gender diverse inclusion in sport. And I just reflect on being in Rio 2016. I was really lucky to be there for the track and field and to see, I was sitting pretty close to the finish line when Costa Semenya completed a 100 metre or 800 metre run and, and won the gold medal. And one of the best things about the Olympic Games and being at the track and field especially is the camaraderie between the athletes straight after a race and the hugs and the, you know, the congratulations they give each other. But Casta was casted aside. You know, she was ignored by all of her competitors and it just didn't sit well with me. So it, it's been an interesting area that I'm even working through in community sport. And I wonder how you reflect on trans and gender diverse inclusion in sport right now.
1: It's a, both a, an intense area, it's a complicated area, and there's a lot of people working on it, I will say. Um, and it's not easy, right? And what's, and, and so we're, we're actually looking at this, we're gonna be doing a webinar dedicated to transgender and looking at this. And I don't know what the answer looks like yet myself, but whatever the answer is, it will be rooted in human rights. It'll be rooted in human rights, human rights norms, standards, and be very uh, not the science, but the human rights part of it. Um, and we'll see. My approach will be to get a lot of really smart people in the room, and and understand how do we look at this, not from two sides that are dug in, throwing you know fire at each other you know, oftentimes on social media, how can we have a safe discussion around what's the human rights part of this? You know, science aside, what's the human rights part
0: of this? Thank you. Um, And
1: that's the, yeah, that's what we want to tee up.
0: Uh, What are your visions for the future of sport globally? and, And how do we get there together?
1: Vision for sport is fundamentally that, that sport, is what we know it to be which is inherently good and positive for development of you know human potential globally but it isn't that alone it only is that when you have the present in the presence of safeguards that ensure that sport delivers on the on that and that's through work to safeguard children, vulnerable adults. Mm. That's the work to ensure that sports does, does no harm. And when, when we've done that work, then all of those other things that sports can deliver on will be fulfilled. And that's the beautiful part of it.
0: You mentioned the rugby Report. Uh, I also want to know if there's any other reading that you'd recommend. Is there any books that you'd like to give as a gift or have inspired you?
1: Uh, I would say, I mean, one of my favorite just novels um, has always been To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. It's classic um, because it it really grounds us in the reality of what it's like to walk in other people's shoes and the reality that that we face and privilege, the role of privilege. So that made a big impression on me when I was young. In terms of business books um, that, that I like, I mean, Good to Great is, is a classic, Jim Collins. Uh, and then also my favorite that I love, love from business school was Growing Pains by Flamholtz and uh, Randall. And it's, uh, it's terrific. It's about how to grow companies, um, you know, and it's, it's not falling into that abyss from one, you know, growth stage to the next one, is, is being able to successfully navigate those challenges. So those are two that I definitely recommend.
0: Well, I hope you can r- successfully navigate all of the the challenges and have many successes in your role, which is so important for world sport and and even bigger than that. So Mary, thank you for joining me on Frio de Janeiro. It's been fantastic and look forward to staying in touch.
1: Terrific. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: No worries. I really enjoyed it. Well, how good was that, eh? Mary Harvey, an amazing person with an incredible story. As always, the goodies and the show notes will be on abidimam.com. Thanks very much to SightBeat for setting up that website. And until next time, keep smiling, keep scoring.